Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to An Honorable Profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of The New Deal. We're proud to support some of the amazing leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I speak with Jack Schneerman, who's wrapping up his tenure as the comptroller of Nassau County, New York, where he was focused on transparency, accountability, and using data to drive policy decisions. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did, hearing about some of the specific initiatives he championed to fulfill campaign promises about how hard and important it is to focus on culture change, what it's really like to run for office for the first time, and the factors that went into his decision not to seek another term. Jack Schneerman, welcome to An Honorable Profession. Thanks so much, Debbie. I am so excited to be with you. <laughs> it's so fun to talk to you. And we are talking as you finish up your term as Nassau County Comptroller. And I thought that I would just start with the question of what is a county comptroller for people who don't know what that means? Ah, well, first of all, you just stepped into exactly the piece that I've spent four years talking about. And my initial question was, what is the difference between a comptroller and a controller? And the very simple answer is comptroller, C-O-M-P, is more public sector, controller is more private sector. Uh, a wise comptroller in the public sector once said to me, tell people MP stands for money police. And, and that, that. <laughs> that kind of works for people. For the 8 to 12-year-old bracket, we talk about uh, a giant video game controller controlling the finances. But essentially, the chief uh, fiscal officer do the audits, the, the accounting, the finances. But my view of it is it is the hub of nerdery. It is the in-house think tank within government. It's the place where you put out the policy reports, where you do the, the number crunching, where you do the fiscal transparency. And I think you know, my mission, and, and I think we've succeeded now, was to really reinvent the way people look at the comptroller's office um, in our county. You know, it's a big county. We've got 7,500 workers, an average a $3.5 billion budget. We're the premier suburb right next to New York City. And for too long, it had been run like a sort of, you know, small town, essentially, not like a major regional enterprise the way that it really is. And New Deal gave me the opportunity to chat with, you know, folks on the state level and Tobias in Oregon and Illinois and Pennsylvania and Rhode Island to really pick the brains of the big boys. And I say big boys because unfortunately for me, they're all about twice the height that I am. <laughs> they are <laughs> but, not twice uh, the height you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think ultimately we've sort of reinvented, you know, the way that our office does business. We started a policy and research unit that didn't exist before and put out you know, reports looking at how we can do things better, what the best practices are. We've, you know, stolen lots of great ideas from New Deal in terms of whether it be future of work or 
all kinds of stuff on equity. And uh, it's been a really, really fun four years. At the beginning, we said, you know, these are the four priorities. And this last year, we've been saying, you know, we've done all four and more. And that's all I could ever ask for. That's a perfect segue. I have to take a point of personal privilege here and say that, first of all, you're right about the treasures, Democratic treasures. I guess you have to be over six feet to be in that club. It's crazy. But secondly, you were somebody that was on our radar screen before you ran for office, because a lot of those people were calling us and saying, hey, keep an eye on this one. When he runs for office, he should be a New Deal leader. So uh, you were you were uh, the, 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 the admiration was mutual, for sure, I will say that. But it's a perfect segue, because we're literally my next question was to ask you about these four key priorities that you ran on. I will say them if you uh, if and you can tell me if I'm right. I've got uh, I, I know that you talked about opening up and modernizing county government. You wanted to conduct smart audits. You wanted to reform the county contracting system, and you wanted to get the public involved in the comptroller's work. So first of all, is that do I have that right? And second of all, how do you feel about you know some of the things you accomplished? Is there maybe one or two things that you're most proud of? So you got the four exactly right. And I did the crazy thing of putting out our top four priorities in June of my campaign. I said, if, if I'm elected, these are the four things I'm going to do. I said it in, in, in really a high degree of specificity so that when transition started, that's what we planned around. When the first day of work came and we took office, handed it out to not just my management team, but all of the civil service and said, this is what we're accountable to do. And it was how we, what we measured ourselves against throughout the year, but we put out annual updates on it. And I think that helped us drive towards not just doing the four, but but really, you know, blowing them out of the water. So, you know, I, I'd say a couple of things that were the really proudest accomplishments. And uh, the first is we started a transparency portal. Nassau County was one of those places that got a D minus in transparency. It was where you had to fill out the freedom of information request just to like get, you know, basic financial information, dig through papers in an attic or a basement and it was purposely done that way. There was no coincidence as to why those things worked that way. So the sea change and the culture change is to create you know, an, a really modern open data transparency portal, which we did ultimately at the end of our first year called Open Nassau. It's opennassau.nassaucountyny.gov. And we launched all the things that you would imagine you could do so you could track all the money that we spend right on your smartphone, on your tablet, on your computer. I'm a big baseball fan. So we put out a scorecard on the county's finances, which distilled all of our annual reports into the 12 key metrics looking at the county's finances. And we talked about which one's red, which one's yellow, which one's green. Are they going in the right direction or are they going in the wrong direction? Just recently, we put out a, a, an addendum to it, tracking the ARPA money coming down the pike, uh, because that is absolutely so critical to make sure that there's accountability. And to make sure that that money gets spent smartly, we put out this report that honestly, nobody read about the guiding principles to making smart investments. It sounds, it sounds like a snoozer, but it's how do you leverage this stuff, you know, using best practices to, um, to make sure that five years out, the money was spent smart, the communities benefit, and it created things that are sustainable, that lower operating cost instead of unfunded, you know, ultimately, you know, sort of new programs that you can't replicate um, in, in future years. So we're tracking that money. Um, and it was something I wanted to make sure we, we did. 
And then we also just launched a community indicators index, which combines our financial transparency and our equity work. It's a map of our county overlaying key measures of our community's health, demographics, economic development. It's a measure of income inequality, education, healthcare, who's insured, who's uninsured, all the sort of the things that you look at. And it shows you graphically on a map where we're at. And and that way you can drive resources where you really need to go and communicate it to to funders, to the nonprofit community, and, and really help put resources where they need to be. My greatest hope is that ultimately changes the culture within county government. And while I'd say, honestly, that we've been phenomenally successful of launching and using these programs, I think it's too soon to say that the culture has changed. And, and that, I think, is the, is, the, is the work that needs to be done going forward. In any county government, in any local government, anytime you're having any sort of meeting about numbers and finances and what meeting doesn't include budgets, you, you really need this information on a big screen in the background. And you may need to be able to look up numbers you know, immediately and get, and get an answer immediately. And, and I think that's you know, the whole world ought to run by a dashboard and in so, so many ways does run by a dashboard, but all too often government is, is lagging behind everybody else. And I think from our perspective, we've taken government from worst, maybe not quite yet to first, but certainly we've won most improved player award in the league a few, a few years running. And, and I'd like to think that we're, we're towards the top of the heap right now. And so that's been one of our biggest achievements. And, and the other one I think I would mention, we've done some really interesting, innovative audits that are sort of first first time out. And I, I've, I've driven our auditors crazy figuring out ways to do this. We've done a three-part series on nepotism. Mm. In New York State, Teddy Roosevelt invented the civil service system and the merit-based system in the, you know, the late 1890s and, and with all the right things and, and because New York State had Tammany Hall. And all too often, all of that still exists. And the result of it is the right people don't get the right jobs for the right reasons. The wrong people do. And when you extrapolate that over a big workforce, it's wildly inefficient. Not to, and of course, it's wrong. So we've, um, we've really taken a hard look at systemic approaches and policies to changing that culture to a merit-based culture so that every college student in our region knows that they have a fair shake of getting a good job in government doing good things that will make their communities better. I'm hopeful that that is a real legacy going forward. And then finally, I would just I would just mention that our policy reports are sort of my baby. You know, we have a region that hasn't embraced change and has been losing its competitive advantage, right? Used to be everyone said, no one's ever leaving New York. It's New York. Come on. We, we have the best education. We have everything. And we do. We have this, what we call the deal of living where we live, right? It's access to, to New York City and education and jobs and beaches and all kinds of, one, all the parks, all the things that make our region worthwhile. And yet, young people are leaving at a staggering rate. So we've done an entire report series, starting with who are we and what are our demographics, moving towards at, you know pushing on the census to get everybody counted. We've done a whole series on equity, talking about how if racial and equality gaps were, were closed in our region, it would strengthen our economy by $24 billion. And, and so doing the right thing is not just right, but it, it will lower everybody else's taxes ultimately. 
and that that hopefully appeals to to those that we have trouble appealing to normally. And we have a region where young people are leaving, and nationally, young people live twenty somethings live with their parents at at about sixteen percent. In our region, that number is forty four percent. So we got work to do. We have real work to do to modernize our competitive offering as a region to residents to businesses. So that people really want to live, work, and and play, and, and and you know, and raise their families here. Nobody wants to be part of a sinking ship. Everybody wants to be in a place that is vibrant. And uh, we've put out a series of reports about about all this. And I got to say, a lot of this work, whether it be the nepotism audit, whether it be these reports, sort of getting at the tough questions or the or the financial transparency piece, a lot of this work makes folks uncomfortable. And you have to be upfront and honest about that. Right, it challenges the status quo. There's always somebody that says, "You know, it'd be better if we didn't quite touch this issue right now." And then, as the issue ripens, everyone turns around and says, "How come nobody's talking about this?" I would just say my takeaway from all of it is, I ran for this office to do exactly this work and in exactly this way, and I'm able to exit now having zero regrets because. We did what we came to do and what we set out to do and, and, and um, you know, really didn't compromise on that work, even when it got a little uncomfortable <laughs> for, yeah. for, for folks, yeah. you know, sometimes. And, and, and I, I think that's, that's something that, you know, people don't, you know, always talk about, you know, it, in, in retrospect, success and achievement, you know, sounds inevitable. And in the moment, it never is, right? It's really hard and people are always saying, don't do it, or you're doing it wrong, or nobody could possibly do that, whatever the case may be. And so um, I think I would just say to other folks who are looking at taking on tough challenges, it's never going to have an engraved invitation. And by the time engraved invitation were were to come, it's always too late. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. You know, you have done so much great work. And I'm so glad you you touched on most of the stuff I wanted to make sure we we got to talk about. Why is it so hard? Why do people I mean, you obviously talked about a little bit about just it makes people uncomfortable. And so politically, maybe it's a little bit of a a third rail. But like, what? Why is it so hard to use data and evidence as kind of the basis for decision making and for anybody who wants to start doing more of that? Like, where do you even start to get your head around that? So I heard this great quote recently, which is new to me, but probably not new to others, which is everybody loves transformation, but nobody likes change. Hmm, I love that. I love that. And that's what it really comes down to, right? Everybody wants to, to talk about this, that the amazing success story that, you know, something dramatically transformed, but nobody wants to, 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 to take on the scary piece of change. And I, I think that's, to me, that's the, the common denominator because- more often than not, a lot of the policy solutions are known. And, and, I, and I know I and others in New Deal, we all spend so much energy finding the smartest, best ways to do things. When I think a lot of the time, what's lacking is not good ideas, but the political will. Mm-hmm. Making tough choices is hard because they're tough choices. I think about where you know our county's finances were at the beginning of the term, and I think about to this this fascinatingly kooky experience I had addressing our legislature for the first time. Our, our legislature, a lot of the legislators, particularly on the Republican side, have been there for decades since, their le- since the legislature itself started in the mid-90s. And so they say to me, after I laid out all the challenges that we saw financially and looking over the finances, they said, so what are your big ideas? 
What do you got? All and, and honestly, this was not an honest conversation. Their plan was to sort of be against whatever I said. And, and my thought was, you don't want to hear ideas. You've been on this dais for 25 years, 30 years. You've heard every idea that's come down the pike. In my office, there's binders, binders of um, of of ways to you know improve the county's finances. There's no shortage of brilliant ideas, but for whatever reason, good, bad, or indifferent, nobody has found a path to yes on all these things. There's been no, you know, this is the menu of choices I'm willing to say yes to. So that's the real question, right? What are you willing to do? Not what's the new idea? There's no wizard. I think people look for like a magical wizard a lot of the time, particularly on financial matters. And I I just, I have learned now that that is really dangerous thinking. Yeah. There's always a smart idea, but but more importantly, there's got to be the guts to actually go ahead and do what you know to be right. Well, and I mean, that takes a couple different forms, right? You've got... um you taught you touched on this but one of the questions i wanted to ask you was about culture change because i think it's something we don't talk en- enough about frankly in government and you know great leaders often have to come in and change a culture and what you're talking about is you know really a culture change whether it's the nepotism piece or just you know the transparency and the accountability that inevitably comes with transparency right if you put things out there people can measure you but people can see whether you're doing a good job or not so how do you think how did you come in thinking about culture change in the government Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. So I've been involved in, this is my third culture change experience in government. First in a town called Brookhaven, which had previously been called Crookhaven. Mm-hmm. Um, then the city of Long Beach, a small seaside city that that is very parochial and, and doesn't like to change. And, and now in a much bigger Nassau County, and it, you know, 1.4 million population. Your culture change is not easy because you have to generate buy-in. Uh, I can come in, I, I know, and I've, I've, I've sort of learned this the hard way, as I know a lot of folks have, you can come in with all the best ideas, and then someone will say, that's nice. I've heard this, I've heard ideas like yours come and go for decades, and I was here before you, and I'll be here after you, and that's all well and good. And so I, I think culture change starts with buy-in and showing people, you know, what they get on the other side of that culture change. And to be honest, you know, I think that's the place after four, you know, four years in Nassau County government, I think we've put up extraordinary accomplishments and it's, it's a little self-serving for me to call them extraordinary, but I think they are. I think on a culture change level, we've moved the needle, but not completely, right? We'll see where it goes because those that want to, you know, go back to the former culture, they can, and they might. It's a placeholder for culture change. We've talked about modernization. We have to do things. We have to deliver services in a modern way to the communities that we have, not the community that we had 50 years ago, but the community that we're going to have tomorrow. We have to do things in the best way technology from a technology standpoint. And we try to make the culture change a little less scary and just make it about updating things, you know, and, and modernization. And from what I've experienced, that helps at least helps get a little bit of momentum going. And there's, there's always someone there to tell you why it's done the way it is and why it, you know, should be that way or why it's hard or scary to do it any different. Um, And I think that just, that just takes time and takes having a core team that really is as committed to that culture change um, as, as humanly possible. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, f- I feel like another aspect of this, Jack, might be, you know, getting the public buy-in too, right? So, you know, politics also requires coalitions and getting people on board and, and, and generating that good public will, making government work better. Although clearly a passion of yours and of mine is not always the sexiest issue that people think about when they're thinking about electing their leaders. So how do you buy the, get the public buy-in on this? I think that's, I mean, I think that's exactly the right question because the people who don't want culture to change and don't want improvement for whatever their reason, their entrenched reasons are, they're counting on the public staying asleep. So I, I found that things like 311, for example, things that create responsiveness and interaction in government, they're incredibly powerful. In our office, we did a, a tip line, report it, reform it at NassauCountyNY.gov. We got the public involved that way, and and that uh, we found that helpful. Honestly, in some ways, one of the most popular things that we ever did was publicly advertise in the big regional newspaper for financial professionals to join our independent audit advisory committee. You might think that's kind of a snoozer, and and I I thought that that was, but it generated more engagement from the public than I ever could have imagined in our first year because people said, "Hey." You're asking us to get involved. You're opening up the doors. This is wild. This is amazing. And so we ended up with this sort of incredibly thoughtful and accomplished group that I joked was like the Supreme Court of uh, of auditors, uh, people who had been like you know recently retired, you know higher ups at Standard and Poor's and, and and places like that to come in and help you know with completely free consulting essentially in the county and and that kind of engagement was really powerful. We made things public on our living wage hotline. We we put out uh, we made a living wage hotline 571 wage and we did it in, you know, a multilingual, more language access oriented capacity than had ever been done before. So things like that and and a lot of social media honestly trying to show people value from our financial transparency stuff. We did fact Fridays and things like that of hey, if you take a look at this portal, you might find out this Honestly, this is in a nerdy office like Controller, it's not easy, right? It is not easy to get people to wake up and pay attention. So we tried to do our level best to to take on issues that they care about and, and to show value on what we call the so that. The so that is we do this work of making things more efficient, of finding waste, of improving operations so that resources can drive to the communities. Um, that we care about. And that actually really helped our line level employees in our claims department, for example, who were paid way too little to do way too much. And and they were really the front line of defense um, for the taxpayers. And, and in terms of driving money into our communities to nonprofits, particularly during COVID, that kind of uh, morale booster for our line employees, we found, to be honest, on the political side, when I ran for office, my pollster gave me some sobering news that said, our message of cleaning up government, saving taxpayer dollars, modernizing things, he said, that's good. It gets you, it gets you to like a two-point loss. But when you add the so that, that was an additional seven-point swing. Yeah, and you're in a tough you're in a tough district. You're in a very much in a swing district. Just for listeners to understand the the context of that sentence, yeah. Yes, yes. To be candid, we are in a region that demographically has been steadily moving Democratic, and yet 
I would argue the strongest red wave that you saw in the country this year was in our region. It was not just the national environment, but there were New York state specific issues that really resonated for voters and, um, and democratic turnout in communities that we need to care didn't come through. And I think that there's real work to do there. Yeah. I want to ask you a little bit more about kind of just your outlook on, you know, using transparency data. You mentioned ARP dollars, right? I mean, we've got ARP with this infrastructure bill just passed. State and localities are about to get a lot of money to do some really fantastic things that are, you know, to your point, could, you know, can be transformative, although I think that word scares people. So I, I hesitate to use it. But, you know, I think that can that can really address some long standing issues, particularly around equity and inequity and things like access to services and other stuff. I know that equity played a big part of the way you thought about your work. Can you just talk a little bit more about how you use data and transparency to, to address some of those kind of things that, that you that you where you want to make sure that the that the results are happening for communities where where there's real gaps? Absolutely. So, I mean, our community has big tranches of money coming down the pike, uh, Elsa, and and it creates a financial inflection point for a uh, for a county that, for decades, has had a state control board overseeing the finances and and really can't get out of its own way financially. It's a real inflection point. Suddenly, and I think you know we're just a more maybe a more stark example of what a lot of places were facing. Um, you know, as COVID hit, the biggest wave financially, worst, you know, obviously public health wise, but from a financial perspective, worst case scenario, biggest financial crisis counties ever faced. Now, because of the good work that was done locally and nationally and such, there's real resources coming in. And so this could be a watershed moment towards financial sustainability and towards really, really addressing systemic issues in our communities if we make the smart choices. And and I was joking and nobody read our report about making those smart choices. At least I shouldn't say nobody in general, nobody in our county because it, because there was a, oh, no, no, no. We, we, you know, we know the great pander here, right? We're going to cut fees on this. We're going to, you know, do that. And, and as opposed to taking this long-term approach, because the truth is if, you know, if you use this money towards things that lower operational costs financially, you'll be in a better place financially going forward. But if you leverage the money towards addressing systemic problems, whether they be equity, for example, which we, you know, we, we really made an argument about childcare, for example, things that would have an economic return, which produces sales tax revenue and so on and so forth. But you, it's, a, it's an investment in the well-being of our communities that pays off in a better economy and ultimately, you know, government's finances improve when the regional economy improves. And so my job is to look out for government's finances. And my argument was, well, the best way you can improve the government's finances is by investing in our communities in a way, uh, whether it be in infrastructure, whether it be in childcare, whether it be in equity issues that close those sort of equity gaps that get us into a place where we achieve our our potential as a community and you know it, it's the old cliche of a rising tide lifts all boats you know you, this is where we need to be for whatever reason it is not readily apparent to people you know we put out so we just put out different versions of the same report honestly we put out our series of equity uh, on equity reports you know we, we then started doing here's our equity gap toolkit 
which was a fancy way of saying, if you didn't read the first three and you didn't decide to care until now, here's a toolkit, a greatest hits album of you know the, the top five steps you could take right now to finally address these issues. And then if you can get interest, if we can get you interested, maybe you'll go back and you'll read the, the, the source material, whether it be you know closing equity gaps or investing in workforce development or this sort of pandemic relief. And, and, and we really have made a big push on childcare. It's one of the biggest cost drivers in our region, obviously nationally as well. But here in New York State, it costs more to put a kid through childcare than it does tuition to a SUNY school. Hmm. And everybody saves to put their kids to college. And nobody that I have ever met has had the foresight to say, I'm going to have a kid. I'm going to save for childcare. So it's... Uh, but you need to. It's no, that expensive. Yes, yes, yes. Well, not only that, I mean, you have to like get yourself on a list before you're you're pregnant. I mean, it's yeah, it's the whole system is really sure. just uh, yeah, just uh, crazy. Yeah, it's a broken system. It's a broken system. It's a broken system. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jack, I want to make sure we've got time to talk a little bit about your path into public service. This is an honorable profession, as you know, and we t- like to talk about just the nobility of this work, which you've really obviously talked about so much right now about the, the difference you're making. But you came into this office, you know, with already a reputation as kind of a turnaround artist in government. And you mentioned both your work in Long Beach and and in, in Brookhaven. You went to Tufts, you got your master's in public policy at Harvard. Did you think you were going to go into government from the get go? Or what, where did you think you were headed? So I wasn't sure whether I would go. I, I think my plan was all the above. It was, where could I go to be part of the action, to make a difference, to learn, and to just move the needle on issues that I care about? And kind of agnostic, and I still kind of am, honestly, between whether that at, at any given moment is in government or the nonprofit sector or the private sector or whatever else I'm not thinking of. And I wasn't necessarily planning on running for office. In fact, I had been thinking about moving into the nonprofit sector after my experience in city government. And a situation arose where our county was really struggling. There were a series of corruption scandals. And after looking over all the possible people who could run for office, they didn't seem to be wanting to do it. And I thought, you know what? I think I can make a difference here. And I did not get the engraved invitation from the sort of powers that be and the party and and all that stuff. I took a bit of an audacious, uh, audacious step and said, I, I think I can, can do this. I, I want this job. I want to do this work. And okay, the job interview is an election. What the heck? Let's go for it. And I, I jumped out there and did the really hard work that nobody wants to talk about of raising money. There is nothing harder than raising money as a first-time candidate over the holidays with everything on the line to show in that first filing period in January that you are viable. And people don't, nobody warned me and prepared me for that. I'll be honest. I knew that raising money would be hard. Of course it's hard, but oh my goodness, explaining to people what, what's a controller? Why do you want to be a controller? Why do you want to do this? What, why is this? Why, why do you think you could do this? You've never, you know, been on a level of government this big before. This is a big leap. You know, all those things that here. And, and particularly, candidly, if you don't come to the table from the wealthiest family or all the connections and all that kind of stuff, it was one of those gut check moments, all in moments that was, I'll never forget. It was terrifying. It was, you, know, you wake up at four in the morning with that pit burning in your stomach. 
And ultimately, it was really gratifying to be able to say, well, I outraised people. I'm here. I'm ready. I've got, you know, more donors than anybody else. Like, let's let's do it. If there's so many and, people listening, Jack, uh, who, I want to just, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want to, because I, I, I want to follow up with a follow-up question there, because there's so many people listening to this podcast who think are thinking about running for office, I think. Like, so, and you're so candid, and that's such a wonderful thing to share with people. So what did you do? Like, wh- how did you even think about it? Did you, you go out to your friends and family? Like, where do you start? So I did what they sort of tell you to do is say, what's my path to my first $100,000? And I made a list of everyone I could ask for money and, I st- and, and how much I might be able to ask them for. Some of them gave more. Some of them gave less. Some of them didn't give. Some of them you know, came through in ways I never would have imagined. Then I had to go back to them again, which I didn't know was part of the process. It's one thing to get somebody who's not used to giving money to give you money, and it's hard and it's personal. And there's another thing to say, I can't thank you enough for, for supporting me, and I need you one more time. And my fundraiser said something to me, which I'll never forget, which was, you're now the most expensive friendship that all of your friends have. Hmm. (laughs) It really was not a fun moment in uh, realizing that. Uh, I'll tell you, there was a day I realized maybe I can do this fundraising thing. I I was making fundraising calls and they tell you to make a specific ask. And, and, And some of the first ones, I honestly didn't have the guts to make a specific ask or I didn't know how much to ask for. And I made um, this fundraising call to someone that I'd known and I respected and, and, and I thought maybe he would be willing to be supportive. And he said, before I could chicken out on the specific ask, he said, I'm not going to tell you how much I'm going to give. It just, I'm going to send you a check. And I figured, uh, it's not like I just took maybe a thousand dollar supporter and raised a hundred dollars out of it. And I keep up at this rate and I'm out of this thing in a, in a heartbeat. And the check arrived. And it was dramatically more money with a note that said, I believe in you. We need to, we need to do this. Let's go. Mm. And I was so moved and fired up and thought, okay, I'm going to spend my holiday season making calls, you know, like a lunatic. And then when it, beca- when, it when it's too late to make calls on the East coast, I'm going to call my friends on the West coast. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things. It's hard work. It's not easy to do. It's hard, hard work. work. It is. I'm glad you talked about that. It's not something we often talk about on the show. So thank you for diving in on that a little bit. I, I want to ask you another question. You recently announced you're not going to seek a second term. I often get to ask people about why they chose to run for office and what factors go into deciding to run for office. So I, I want to ask you what factors go into deciding not to run for an office? What was your What was your thinking? A lot of them. <laughs> a lot of them. So I'll start with the most personal, honestly, is when I ran for office the first time, my daughter, who was then turning two, stopped letting me be part of bedtime Mm. because I was out every night and the one or two nights that I was home every now and again, she just wasn't used to me. Then when COVID hit, I put my daughter to bed every single night. Now she's a bit older. And uh, the idea of stopping that and going out every single night again on the rubber chicken dinner circuit three events of people who have already made their decisions yet you know for you against you yet hooting hollering yelling you yelling it just didn't really appeal to me and you know i have all the all all the accomplishments of the work we've done all the scars 
candidly, and the knife marks of the tough change that I've carried. And it was the right decision for me and my family not not to look to go through all that again at this at this moment. And it turns out it was not an easy decision at the time. And I, I thought it was a really good time to to make the pivot that I'd originally thought about making out of government. I've been in government for 10 years and it's really healthy time for change. Tom Brady says you can't, even though I'm a New York fan, I say, Tom Brady says you can't keep doing the same thing for too long. It's a bad idea. So I, I thought that was a, you know, that seemed like a really healthy thing to do. I, I'm not going to pretend that I had the political clairvoyance to know that everybody was going to get creamed this year, but they did. And in retrospect, I now know that I would have run. I would have put my heart and soul into it and worked myself and my team to the bone and almost certainly would have lost no matter how wonderful the work that I put out was, because that's just where things were in the political environment this year. So I feel real happy and relieved, happy is the wrong word, but more relieved that, you know, I, I was able to take a moment, pivot and spend the time strategic planning towards how I want to make a difference in the future how I want things to work for my family in the future. My kids are little six and soon to be four. And I feel like I've made a really healthy decision for my family. Public service is in my blood a hundred percent. So there's no world where I'm not involved in, in, in every kind of way, but there's so many different ways to serve. And for me at this moment, the right way to serve, I think is, is um, what I'm moving forward with. And, and I feel real good about that. Yeah. Well, I have no doubt knowing you and uh, that you will make a difference in whatever it is you choose to do next. And as somebody who's watched your amazing, really, tenure in Nassau County and do, doing some stuff that's that's national in scope in terms of what people can learn from, what people can emulate, what people can steal from, just a big th- thank you for, for, for putting yourself out there and doing all this work. And I'm looking forward to working with you in whatever capacity that public service continues to take in the future. Thank you so much. And I, I should just say, by the way, that New Deal has been, as I, as I know I told you at the conference recently, New Deal has been one of the highlights of my time. The ability to learn from others, to be part, you know, be part of a network of peers who are doing similar difficult work, regardless of where they are in the country, who sort of understand what it's like, that is worth everything. It's the thing that we talked about in graduate school of having those sort of allies and and staying alive in a difficult environment, it's meant so much for me. And when I, when I made my pro-con list about, am I running this year? Am I not running this year? As, as, mu- as strange as it sounds, New Deal was on the list of, well, wait, if I don't run, does it mean that I can't be a New Deal anymore? <laughs> <laughs> well, that means the world to me. And of course, you know, once you're family, you're family. So uh, you're not getting away that easy, even if you're not in office. But uh, thank you so much, Jack. Thank Thanks you. for taking the time in your uh, final days here to tell us about your tenure. It's been just a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more Amazing Leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.